You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 22, Krupp Steel Part 5, Gustav Krupp, or The Kaiser's Shriveled Arm. Today I'm recording from Dusseldorf Prison, and this episode is brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. In the days leading up to Britain's entrance to World War I, H.G. Wells wrote, At the very core of all this evil that has burst at last in the world disaster lies Kruppism, this sordid, enormous trade in the instruments of death. Maybe one day I'll go into H.G. Wells. He's not just a science fiction author. But setting that aside, it's clear that many people thought Krupp and Kruppism, such as it is, were to blame for World War I. It's almost certainly overly reductive, but he's not wrong, in a certain sense anyway. And H.G. Wells was not the only person who pointed to Krupp more than anyone else to blame for the war. A lawyer named Wilhelm Moulon had fled to Switzerland and started denouncing Krupp as well. And he was more than just a disgruntled ex-employee. Moulon had been Gustav Krupp's private secretary, and he had gone on to be a member of the Krupp board of directors. What he had to say was extremely damaging, to say the least. Moulon said, Six months before August, Krupp received secret advice about the coming war from Berlin, and thereupon proceeded to extend the factories to cope with the additional work. Remember, dear listener, that the Krupp company, that the Krupp concern had been caught in several other criminal scandals. This was a patently criminal company, though I would argue that almost every business of that size is too. But they knew six months before that World War I would break out. That is the key detail from that little story. Now let's get into it. So going into World War I, Germany and its public had very high morale. Let's not forget how badly Prussia had stomped on France in the Franco-Prussian War not that many years before. And the Second Reich had been busy with colonial expansion, mainly in Africa. They had all but forgotten that France could fight back. For leftists, particularly those in the United States and Europe, World War I was an unprecedented tragedy. Despite decades of writing and proclamations and rhetoric about internationalism, almost every socialist party in each of their respective parliaments voted to back their own governments in going to war. Now, entire books have been written about this topic, and I'm not going to get into that many of the details here, but very few prominent leftists chose to oppose World War I publicly. The stakes were extremely high, to be sure. In the United States, for example, anyone who opposed World War I was either deported, like with Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, for example, among many, many others, or imprisoned, like Big Bill Haywood, over a hundred IWW leaders, and so on. It was literally illegal to oppose the war in the United States. At least public statements to that effect, which, you know, You'd think, you'd think that would be sort of a free speech thing, but, you know, here we are. In Europe, it was more complicated, where some countries were similarly repressive, albeit in different ways, 
but most socialists in Parliament were not subject to such extremes. They could have taken a principled stance, but on the one hand, nobody really knew how bad World War I was going to get, and two, they chose to back their countries in order to keep their positions in political clout. The SPD, the German Social Democrats, did not oppose the war, and it split their own party. It was World War I that occasioned the eventual formation of the KPD, the German Communist Party. So, the SPD, the German Social Democrats, they were guilty of opportunism, in other words. This was one of the main things that set Lenin apart from other Marxists. He was against the war before, he did not blink, and kept opposing it all the way through to the October Revolution and after. Two other socialists who publicly opposed the war were Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. We will pick up on them later. In the Franco-Prussian War, Krupp delivered a secret weapon in the form of artillery that nearly doubled the range and accuracy of existing cannons, right? Well, the absolute madman Krupp's engineers did it again, twice technically speaking. They delivered two different superweapons. First, they developed the first fully functional submarines all the way back in 1890 using steam engines. But by World War I, they had built much better submarines with diesel engines. Those U-boats would go on to wreak havoc on Allied ships. Second, and somewhat less well-known, Krupp had developed gigantic artillery cannons. The 42-centimeter Big Berta cannon, which required 200 special artillery artillerymen to fire. It had a 9-mile range, and its projectile velocity was equal to 5 express trains traveling at 62 miles per hour. Big Berta basically changed warfare forever, because for hundreds of years, artillery had been reducing the effectiveness of defensive structures. But some people say that Big Berta basically sealed the deal and completely ruined the effectiveness of defensive structures as such. People have noticed and noted that Big Berta, the cannon, sounded weirdly like the V-2 rockets, and sort of acted like them too, if you think about it, or vice versa, I guess you could say. To the French, who had no idea until later what it was, the Big Berta cannon sounded like an enormous dashend vomiting, is how it's been described. The German army used Big Berta to destroy three French forts in quick succession. The secretiveness, excitement, and effectiveness of Big Berta was comparable to the atomic bomb. Also, in case you're wondering, Big Berta was named after Berta Krupp. She reportedly did not particularly enjoy the notoriety. In the course of the war, the Allied forces kept intercepting Krupp freight ships, bringing raw materials to Krupp factories. But, frequently they would let them go. Because in a certain sense, the war isn't real. The true war is the celebration of markets, all that stuff Thomas Pynchon taught us, right? Now, it would be inaccurate to call, Krupp, call the Krupp concern war profiteers, mainly in the sense that calling someone a war profiteer sort of sounds like that's all they do. And in some ways, the Krupp concern was much, much more than that. But they did do normal, outright war profiteering too, and you would be surprised at how straightforwardly vulgar it was. For example, there were pre-war munitions deals that could not be broken. 
Some things are more sacred than war, after all. Due to patents shared between Krupp and Vickers, the British weapons company, Krupp was due a royalty of a shilling a shell, the fact of which came out in the House of Commons in 1915, and was apparently incredibly embarrassing for everyone, as it ought to be. The British ministers assured everyone that the contract between Krupp had expired in 1914 and that no royalty had been paid since then. This was technically true. Since the countries were at war, nobody was paying anybody for the time being. But the contracts were still legally binding, and both companies were keeping books on it. By Gustav Krupp's reckoning, Albert Vickers, the British munitions manufacturer, owed Krupp 60 marks for every dead soldier. Now, if you want to talk about the stab-in-the-back myth, there's a better one for you. Also, while it doesn't relate to our story, personally, I'm a curator of stories about how awful and backwards the military commanders were during World War I. And in the process of researching this episode, I read a new story that British commanders were making their subalterns attend riding school and learn to play polo while at the front, and that during the worst fighting on the Somme, divisional horse shows were, were being held just behind the front lines. Now Gustav Krupp, as you might imagine, spent all of his time during World War I making sure that his money machines were flowing. Because of that, there are not that many stories about his activities during this period, except that Essen kept growing and growing, with new houses and factories all over. One story that stands out is when the Kaiser visited the Krupp factories very late in the war, September 9th of 1917 to be precise. For reference, this is like less than two months from this same Kaiser being forced to abdicate on November 9th and Germany surrendering on November 11th. So this is the Kaiser two months before he abdicates visiting the Krupp factories. And this is one of my favorite stories. So the Kaiser shows up at the Krupp factory and he takes a quick tour through several of them, but he kind of rushes it because he's seen them before and because what he really wanted to do was to address the workers. Which, I mean, the Kaiser was not a tactical brain genius. He was about to lose the war after all, but every time he would visit the Krupyana in the past, he would speak to the executives, he'd speak to the foremen, and a group of hand-picked, specially cucked workers, right? Curated, the most loyal, well-behaved workers, right? Well, on this day, the Kaiser insisted on speaking to the mass of normal, grimy, actual Krupiana, like th just the normal workers, right? One observer noted that the Kaiser had very visibly just been to the hairdresser and wrote, he came with curled locks, the way he was pictured on coins then, and had a leather strap over his uniform shoulder, a custom among English officers, but one that had not been introduced in the German army. He carried a walking stick with a small hatchet for a grip, which the Hungarians had given him. The Kaiser was a fancy lad, right? Now, to be fair, the Kaiser had shown up on such short notice that Gustav Krupp literally couldn't have had the time to pick out the most politically reliable workers for him to speak to. 
And at the same time, the Kaiser really didn't have the same kind of glow about him, you know, at the very end of World War I, right when they were about to lose and he was about to abdicate, right? Either way, the stage is set. The Kaiser is speaking to 1,500 workmen who were there to hear what nobody realized would be the Kaiser's last speech in the Ruhr Valley. The Kaiser said, It is just a question of making a supreme effort. The whole issue hangs on that. There is disaffection in the interior of the country, but it does not come from the hearts of the people. It is artificially inspired. Anybody who listens to such disloyal talk and spreads rumors in trains, factories, or elsewhere is committing a crime against his fatherland and is a traitor deserving of harsh punishment no matter whether he be a count or a worker. I know quite well that each of you agrees with me. The crowd did not agree, and it was becoming noticeable. And if there's one thing that the Second Reich was all about, ironically enough, it was about creating a safe space around the monarch so he never had to hear dissenting opinions or not receive the respect he thought he deserved. The Kaiser asked the workers to hold up their end as he was holding up his. I on my throne and you on your anvil. Now this was a sweltering day and they were working in foundries. The contrast between their work and his imperial comfort was way too obvious and the workers started leering and muttering. One of the Kaiser's adjutants wrote in his memoirs, Looks became grim, and the more excited the emperor grew, the more clearly his audience expressed its negative reaction. That's probably underplaying it somewhat. The Kaiser could see their discontent, and I guess he went to the old Gil the Salesman route from The Simpsons or something, because the Kaiser began begging the workers to stand by him, and he tried to assure them that God would never let them down. The Kaiser started speaking rapidly and got shrill and he began gesturing around frantically with his withered left arm. He said, Be as strong as steel, and the solidarity of the German people welded into a single steel block shall show the foe its strength. Those among you who have been moved by this appeal, those whose hearts are in the right place and who will keep the faith, let them stand up and promise me in the name of all the working men of Germany. We shall fight and hold out to the last man, so help us God. Let those who will do this answer me by saying yes. At the end of the Kaiser's speech, the newspapers reported that there was loud applause and shouts of yes. But every single account from everyone who was actually there said there was only deafening silence. Some witnesses who were present stated that the workers began calling out, asking, when will we have peace? And others shouted, Hunger. Sensing the unrest, the Kaiser quickly left in his limousine. He told the workers that he was headed for the front, but he was actually headed for the nearby spa, which had mineral springs. <laughs> the speech was so unsettling that even the executives openly discussed how bad it was, and of course you can imagine what the workers thought. There were rumors in other parts of the country that the workers of Essen had charged the Kaiser and tried to kill him, which was probably not true, but the official denials came out, which only made things worse. As Bismarck said, nothing's worth believing until it's been officially denied, right? And of course, 1,500 workers, some of the most loyal workers in the entire country, 
had seen with their own eyes the Kaiser's weaknesses, and then saw the government lie about it. If only the Kaiser had addressed a different factory with less loyal workers. Imagine what we could have seen. So the end of the war came, and then came the political chaos. We've talked about the aborted German revolutions in prior episodes, and about the various short-lived Soviets that were set up and then put down. From 1919 to 1921, there were over 354 known political assassinations. Walter Rothenau, who we've mentioned before, was murdered around this period, for instance, and Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht were arrested by the Freikorps, beaten, shot, and their bodies were dumped in a canal. At Via Wegel, the Krupp company lived in fear of the Red Terror. They were convinced that the Reds would come in the night and put them up against the wall, like what almost happened to Fritz Tyson. They were so afraid that they sewed up and prepared a red flag to fly over the mansion Via Wegel. No mobs ever came, so Gustav Krupp went down to address his workers. Gustav was already aware that they needed to immediately cut down on production since the war was over. Gustav had thought of that. He was dedicated to keeping all of the workers that were already on the job before the start of World War I, which is mostly to say all of the German workers. So he fired all the Polish workers. He gave them all 14 days severance pay and a railroad ticket, which could almost be viewed as largesse, except that he wanted them gone rather than possibly taking over his factories, right? Like we've discussed in a couple episodes, there was the right-wing cap push, which caused President Ebert of the Social Democrats to call for a general strike in defense. As these things do, the general strike then became a full-blown left-wing revolution. This time, the Ruhr Valley saw some action. The Ruhr Valley was out of bounds for Allied and Reichswehr troops. So the leftist but anti-communist wrote Soldatenbund, the Red Soldiers League, marched towards Essen. We are talking about a, an army of 70,000 men led by ex-noncoms. On March 19th, they fought a battle against the police in the Freikorps. 300 men died, but the Reds won, and the Krupp factories were taken over. In the following week, Mulheim, Dusseldorf, Oberhausen, Elberfeld, and, and Kedvig fell to the workers. In each city, a local republic was proclaimed, and they held local elections. President Ebert of the Social Democrats was horrified at what he had accidentally unleashed. Remember, the German Social Democrats were opportunists here, right? And so President Ebert petitioned the Allies to allow the Reichswehr to suppress the revolt, which they did. One by one, each local republic was cut off and exterminated. Essen had its last stand on Easter Sunday, which created a bizarre scene where some citizens were out in their Sunday finest and they could see kids with toy bunnies playing, but there was also a paramilitary death squad running around shooting down leftists, all in downtown Essen. The New York Times found and interviewed two teenage girls who had served as nurses at this time. These two girls saw the Freikorps massacre workers who had surrendered, and one of them said, I think all soldiers ought to be put in front of their own machine guns and shot until there are none of them left. 
Then, after the Reichswehr put down the communist revolution in the Ruhr Valley, then the French invaded. <laughs> so the French military invaded the Ruhr Valley in order to basically enforce aspects of the Versailles Treaty, like taking all the coal for themselves, for instance, right? And in their occupation, the French military had orders to destroy a precise number of munitions, as per the Versailles Treaty, right? So the French colonel in charge of destroying munitions went to Krupp, went to Gustav Krupp to seek cooperation. The Krupp concerns directors told him that they didn't actually have as many cannons and shells as needed to be destroyed. In fact, the French had orders to destroy more cannons and ammunitions than existed in all of Germany, so they could not possibly comply with the orders. The French colonel wasn't sure what to do, but you know what? Orders are orders. So the most catch-22, the most catch-22 ass thing I've ever heard in real life happened. This French colonel ordered the Krupp plants to resume full-scale production of arms and munitions in order to make the correct number of weapons and munitions to be destroyed, and then the French destroyed them. As you might imagine, the French occupation of the Ruhr Valley exacerbated inflation and impacted the German economy. And there was a major incident at a Krupp plant where French troops fired upon workers and were then mobbed by the workers, causing 13 deaths and many reprisal killings. Somehow, this massacre also took place on a different Easter Sunday in 1923. Gustav Krupp had many failings, but if there was one thing he was great at, it was ceremonial bullshit, right? So Gustav Krupp organized a full state funeral for the slain workers, creating the stage upon which the entire country could project their considerable resentments and subdued yet burning patriotism. The funeral was heavily covered by the media. Now, lest you think the French are ever particularly tactful, they chose to fly a military airplane over the funeral at tree level, buzzing everyone in attendance. Tensions were extremely high. Then the French came and arrested Gustav Krupp, along with a bunch of other Ruhr Valley industrialists for war crimes. This is the same incident we talked about in episode 3 and in episode 9. This is when John Foster Dulles shows up shows up to negotiate for these industrialists, right? In this incident, Fritz Tyson got a large fine but no prison time. Gustav Krupp, however, was much more guilty than Fritz Tyson, and he was sentenced to a fine of 100 million marks and 15 years in prison. The Berliner Tageblatt, the newspaper that we talked about with Eric Jan Honnesen, so this newspaper, the Berliner Tageblatt, Tageblatt, hyperbolically said, for a verdict like this, we have a parallel only in the Dreyfus case. <laughs> Which is certainly overstating things just a little bit. 100 million marks and 15 years in prison still doesn't, still probably doesn't meet the requirements of justice, but, you know, that's a lot closer than say, a lot of things we're going to see in the Nuremberg trial, right? But let's talk about what happens. So on his part, Gustav Krupp was not really as worried as you might think. He knew that the entire country was behind him, and that he would probably not pay anything and probably wouldn't serve the full term. 
if anything, his thoughts were about his own standing within the Krupp family. And he said, Well now, I really have a perfect right to call myself a Krupp, haven't I? The Essen government and the Krupp company came up with Krupp marks, company script basically, and the notes were in values ranging from 100 marks to 200 million marks. Remember, this is in the period of hyperinflation, right? There was a period of time where Krupp marks was the only functional currency in Essen. So this is a good thing as far as it goes, except that the Krupp pension fund went bankrupt and was completely wiped out. Even worse, there was a small number of workers who had bought 100,000 shares of the company in an experiment in selling shares to their workers. When the marks value dropped through the floor, the company bought the shares back with money that was now worthless. Now remember, there can never really be an arm's length transaction between employer and employee with such massive power imbalances, and you as the worker always get screwed. Worse, these workers couldn't really complain, or at least not win in the court of public opinion because their boss was in prison and had become a national hero. Now, over in Russia, the Bolsheviks had seized power, and they were going through a series of a series of social upheavals, right? And Lenin had great economic plans for the country. He said, the steppe must be turned into a bread factory, and Krupp must help. Accordingly, Soviet Russia made a deal with Krupp, and Krupp machines were sent to plow up 62,000 acres, there would be many more deals with Soviet Russia and the USSR in the future. This is also around the same time that the Beer Hall push was happening, for reference. Now, Gustav Krupp served seven months in jail and then received Christmas amnesty, and he was released from prison. The French had finally decided to pull out of the Ruhr Valley after their own currency had fallen in value. Before they left, however, they outright stole 21 trains and 123 trucks from the Krupp company. To deal with hyperinflation, Gustav Krupp had the company switch their accounting to the gold standard, which is pretty interesting as far as accounting goes. Now, you can't keep the Krupp concern down, literally, and their investments in stainless steel were starting to pay off in a big way. They also developed further methods for turning low-grade iron into high-grade steel, which helped bring them back to their pre-World War I eminence. Of course, the Krupp concern didn't survive based on its innovations and technology. The Weimar Republic was supporting them with an intricate series of subsidies designed to keep their weapons industry alive. Part of the secret rearmament program, right? They also backed the Ruhr Valley's new monopolization of, Ruhr, of the Ruhr's coal. This coal was supposed to go to France and Belgium, but this was no longer being enforced since the French army left the Ruhr Valley. In response to the lack of coal in 1926, the steelmakers of Europe, France, England, Belgium, Luxembourg, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Germany, they all formed a cartel. The cartel was supposed to eliminate ruinous competition by sticking to an annual quota, right? German steel companies signed the agreement and then started massively overproducing because who could possibly stop them, right? At first they broke the quota by overproducing a little bit, but then they started exceeding the quota by 4 million tons a year. 
Anyone who spoke out got reprimanded for warmongering, but of course it was all going directly into the secret rearmament program, right? This is why, for one thing, it's not exactly a mystery how William Stevenson already knew that Germany was rearming. You could just look at the data from the, from the steel cartel, right? And he was assuredly in position to see that being involved in the, uh, the British steel industry. Anyway, so in this period of time, Gustav Krupp, who is already a convicted war criminal, now became a financial criminal. At one point, the company switched their accounting from the gold standard to Dutch guilders, simply because Dutch guilders were so much more stable than the mark. Gustav Krupp spent all his time securing one loan and then using that loan to secure a bigger loan, and so on. In 1926, Gustav was able to settle his dispute with the Vickers Arms Company over his use, over the use of his patents during the war. In a secret Anglo-German mixed arbitration tribunal, they held hearings and settled the disputes. Krupp company records do not reveal the details, but the Vicker company records do. And they reveal that the Krupp company received 40,000 British pounds sterling. Mind you, this is literal blood money. To be clear, this is Vickers paying Krupp for the right to shoot German soldiers. On a technical level, this settlement is insane because it meant that Vickers was claiming that the English only used 640,000 shells in the entire war, which would have meant that every single shell cost four casualties, which of course was patently absurd. It was a settlement, so, it's, so it doesn't actually reflect the real numbers, right? The British army probably fired over four million shells, but the Krupp company was so hard up that they chose to accept the settlement. Then the Berlin government paid the Krupp company 75 million marks to compensate for the losses under the French occupation. The amount was obviously inflated in order to support the company. And that's just one lump sum payment. Forensic accountants have estimated that Krupp received subsidies of at least, and probably more than 300 million marks, apart from the 75 million. And, mind you, this is not using the hyperinflated currency for the time. These subsidies to the Krupp company were kept totally secret, and they seem preposterously high, right? They're basically paying the company to just stay afloat. But, two different chancellors made comments supporting the existence of these secret subsidies in this ballpark, so we know pretty much for certain that it's true. There are no two ways about it. Every coalition before the Nazi party was dedicated to rearming Germany. It was not just the Nazis. Many years later, in April 1945, the U.S. Army seized Krupp paperwork. According to William Manchester, Gustav's papers showed a remarkable talent for international intrigue. Though he omitted the size of the Weimar subsidies, he included virtually everything else, including details which would have run up which would have rung alarms in the chancelleries of the 1920s. They reveal the degree to which Krupp anticipated Hitler. Those who made the Versailles Treaty thought they were depriving Germany of the tools of aggression. They were dreaming. As they dreamed, Gustav Krupp carefully forged the new German sword. So what can we learn from all this? 
For one thing, H.G. Wells called Kruppism the core of evil in this world, which is to say trade and death. Something like 20 million people would be killed in World War I, and something like 75 million people would be killed in World War II. So, perhaps this is not hyperbole, especially when you pair H.G. Wells' comment with the Krupp director, who said that the Krupp company somehow knew that the war was coming. Then we saw how the Krupp company came up with not one, but two superweapons for World War I, the U-boats and Big Bertha. The fact that Germany did not win with them sort of underscores how, <laughs> how they were in a bad position, strategically speaking, and they were ruled by sclerotic and weak rulers. But of course, so was every other country. That's just how World War I went. It's still impressive that they came up with those weapons, and they were both huge innovations in terms of military technology. Then we saw how Krupp profited from the war. Obviously, they got massive profits from their own country, but then they collected money from German soldiers' deaths, too. One shilling per shell, right? Even though they didn't collect on it fully, they still got paid, and that's blood money. You could argue that a country needs to make weapons. That's fair. I do believe that, but what Krupp was doing was next level. And it was fun to see the Kaiser face public ridicule for perhaps the first time in his life. He loved to see it. He deserved a lot worse, that's for sure. But it's something, right? And then it's hard to believe the scale of the communist revolutions in Germany. People don't realize how far they went, and how brutally they were put down. We saw how Krupp pensions went bankrupt, and the workers who were shareholders were screwed. But Gustav Krupp, literally a war criminal, served only seven months and got out, and paid none of the hundred million marks he was supposed to. Then, we saw the formation of the steel cartel in Europe, something which probably shouldn't even exist, because it stifles competition, right? All that Econ 101 stuff, supposedly. Germany knew that no one could penalize them for breaking cartel rules, so they just broke them flagrantly, and broke them in order to rearm Germany, fully supported by the Weimar government. Now, all of this corrupt behavior is incredibly damning, and shows a consistent and clear pattern of intentional criminality over decades and decades. Unfortunately, they were never stopped, and it would only go into overdrive with the Nazis, as we will see in the episodes to come. Now, for sources, I used the same three books, The Arms of Krupp, The House of Krupp, and Blood and Steel. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Just tell a friend about the show. I'm on my way to four Potsdamer plots in Berlin. See you next week, and God bless. Durch Deutschland geht ein tiefer Riss, der spaltet die Nation. Ne Neuheit ist das nicht gewiss, doch von Interesse schon. Das Beispiel Krupp und Krause klärt den wirklichen Verlauf. Der deutschen Spaltung zugehört als Klassenfrage auf. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit. Das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Der Boss der Industrie im Club der reichsten Herren 
Besitzfabriken zechen, die viel tausend Mann ernähren. Als einer von zigtausend Mann steht Krause Tag für Tag in Kruppfabrik zur Arbeit an sein Stundenlohn fünf Mark. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit. Das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jeder Mann versteht. Was krausisch pünktlich produziert, ist mehr als fünf Mark wert. Der Mehrwert wird von Krupp kassiert, weil dem das Werk gehört. Und tausenden Kollegen geht's wie Krause jeden Tag. Herr Krupp nimmt sich den Mehrwert stets als Kapitalertrag. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Prolet. Das ist der Klassengegensatz den jeder Mann versteht. Ist Konjunktur und angespannt der Arbeitsstellenmarkt, wird Krause Partner Krupps genannt, denn dann ist er gefragt. Doch ist der Wirtschaftshimmel trüb, die Auftragslage flau, dann droht den Krauses im Betrieb Entlassung, Lohnabbau. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Die Spaltung hier in diesem Staat erklärt sich folglich so, was Krupp an Macht und Reichtum hat, ist Krauses Risiko. Im anderen deutschen Staate, da gibt es die Krupp nicht mehr. Da sind die Krauses selbst für wahr die Herren der DDR. Damit sich Krupp nie wieder dort etablieren kann, schreibt Kraus.